Our Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is indeed living light upon our darkened eyes. It guards us through temptations and makes us simple wise. Father, we thank you that your word is indeed food, real food for famished ones, freedom for the slave, riches for the needy soul. So, Father, we ask that you may please speak to us today through your word, by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please keep your Bible open to number 21. That will be the passage that we'll be studying together this morning. Well, for the past few months uh, here in SMAC, we have been studying the book of Numbers. And this book is basically all about Numbers? No. It's all about a journey. It's about a long and rather painful journey, actually. A journey in the desert where God is leading Israel from Sinai to the Promised Land. It's a bit like after the wedding ceremony and they're going home. But just that it took a long time to get home. From the conversations that I've been having with a number of you here in SMAC, I sense that many of us, and myself included, are slowly warming up to appreciating numbers. We realize that it is not that difficult to relate to this book after all. Because our own life is like a journey, isn't it? Our Christian life is a journey. A journey with ups and downs, if not more downs than ups sometimes. In Numbers, the Israelites have not arrived in the Promised Land. We Christians have not arrived in our heavenly home either. Like them, we are still on a journey. The Israelites were wanderers in the desert. We Christians are aliens and strangers in a hostile world. Despite having God with them, Israel encountered setbacks. When Israel encountered setbacks, they doubt God's goodness and they complain. Their journey was one marked by constant doubt and rejection of God's goodness. They doubt God's capacity to provide in spite of the repeated signs of His love and His power for them. And doesn't such a journey sound too familiar to the Christian year? During my teenage years in Singapore, I grew up reading a magazine called Teens. This magazine introduced me to the whole world of Aunt Agony. Have you heard of Aunt Agony? Before I knew it, I started writing to Aunt Agony. I had a lot to complain about to my newfound aunt. I felt that life was throwing a lot at me. I wasn't a Christian then, so I didn't think much about God. I just felt that life was unfair. I felt like the whole world was against me. My parents, my friends, my circumstances. Some are trivial, like a badly positioned pimple. Some are significant, like my parents' divorce. So from my perspective, life was really full of drama with one setback after another. As I grew older, I stopped writing to Aunt Agony. I don't, know, I don't remember why. Then I became a Christian at uni, and my life was still full of drama after that. A lot of times to me, my Christian journey just felt unnecessarily difficult with one setback after another. I doubt God's goodness. I grumble and blame God for the setbacks that I face on the journey. I often reject what he tells me to be good, not once, not twice, but many, many times, again and again. 
So when I read about Israel in Numbers, it's a bit like finding a twin brother, a long-lost twin brother. I felt like their journey in the wilderness sounds creepily familiar to my journey as a Christian. Do you feel the same? In today's passage, we see another episode in Israel's journey to the Promised Land. In fact, this is the last of eight complaint episodes that is found in the whole book of Numbers. This episode will echo what we have already witnessed in the first seven complaint episodes already. That is, Israel's journey to the Promised Land is marked by constant doubt and rejection of God's goodness by a stubborn and unthankful Israelites. I've broken down Numbers 21 into two main sections. Hopefully, that will help you to orientate very quickly to what this whole chapter is about. Take a look with me very quickly. I'll give you orientation. In verses 4 to 9, we have the complaint episode involving the fiery serpent, and that will be our main focus for, the, for this morning. Then in verses 1 to 3, that is on top of 4 to 9, and verses 10 to 35, the rest of the chapter, they can be understood all together. All these verses basically make one simple point. And that is, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, under God, Israel progresses quickly and swiftly towards the promised land. God grants them victories over victories over their enemies. So we see, in, we see this in verse 1 to 3, Israel has victory over the king of Arad. In verses 10 to 15, we see a lot of repetitions. Israel set out and came in Oboth. Israel set out and came in Abarim. Israel set out and came and so on. These repetitions quicken the pace of the story and rushes Israel towards the promised land. Verses 16 to 20 does the same thing. Look at the language. From the wilderness, they went on to Matana. From Matana to Nahalia, from Nahalia to Bamoth, and so on. It is saying Israel is on the move, speeding towards the promised land. In verses 21 to 30, Israel defeated Sihon, the king of Amorites. The thoroughness of the conquest was emphasized here. And then in verse 31 to 35, at the end of the chapter, Israel defeated Og, the king of Bashan. So basically, the point is this. 40 years has passed, and the death of Aaron and Miriam that we saw last week, and the imminent death of Moses, marked the end of an era. The entire generation had died in the wilderness for the rebellion, just as God had said. And now Israel, the organized war machine that we see, with God at the center, is on the move again, towards the promised land, just as God had promised. In the coming weeks from Numbers 22 onwards, we'll see even more victories. But this morning, we will focus on the last complaint episode that is found in this chapter. It is nested, interestingly, amidst the victory stories. So let's go with me to 21 verse 1 as we begin on the complaint story. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow before the Lord to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give these people into my hand, then I will devote this, their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites. And they devoted them and their city to destruction. 
So the name of the place was called Homa. Now, let's focus on the Israelites here. What do you notice about them here? Bearing in mind what happened 40 years ago, that the fearful spies reports that they were received and the rebellion against God. And also bearing in mind, here the Canaanite king fought against Israel and took some of the Israelites captive already. What would you expect Israel to do? How would you expect them to respond? And what did they do instead? And what do you think of this second generation? whose parents and grandparents rebelled at the very same spot, Homa. Well, I think they are doing pretty well. They were pretty impressive, I think. They expressed dependence on and obedience to God. They trusted in God in the face of opposition. And for once, they actually approached God and called out to Him for help. And that is at the very heart of what it means to be God's people, a people who trust and obey their God. Israel seems to be doing pretty well. It almost seems like they finally got it. They learned their lesson after 40 years. And now they are actually running to God, their Savior King. But let's see what happened next. 4a, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go round the land of Edom. What's happening? Well, we saw last week that Edom refused to let Israel pass through. And so Israel is forced to turn south. That is to take another route to Canaan, a much, much longer route. So in other words, Israel now encountered a setback in their journey. A setback. Now, how do you think Israel will respond to this setback now? And how do you think they should have responded? 4, verse 4. Let's continue. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they beat the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make fiery serpent. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is beaten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent beat anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. We'll be focusing on this passage this morning, and there are four things here that I would like to look with you very closely. First of all, are you surprised by Israel's response? The people became impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses. In light of what just happened at Homa, in light of the obedience and the trust Israel had just displayed, are you surprised? Such a drastic change. Obedience one day, disobedience another. Is that possible? It's like cooking roti prata, isn't it? I was surprised initially 
but not for long. Because it dawned on me that I can relate to that. I've seen myself being godly and obedient and trusting one day, and when a setback appears in my life, and as the setback continues, I became impatient with God. Verse 4, and the people became impatient instantly. No, they became impatient on the way. Like them, when life seems unnecessarily difficult, I find it very easy to grumble. Why, God? Why must it be that way? Why can't it be like this, my way? And reflecting on my Christian journey, I know there is no guarantee that if I obey God today, that I will obey Him tomorrow as well. I'm just like the Israelites. And don't you find that true in your experience? And that should warn and remind us that we need God's grace to love Him and to obey Him every single day, every single day. We need God's grace to follow Him every single day. Do not think for a single day that you don't need God's grace. Do not let a single day begin without praying and asking God for His grace that we may follow Him. Secondly, let's examine Israel's complaint. Verse 5, it says, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They complain that there is no food and no water, and they loathe, that is, they hate this worthless, that is, miserable food. You hear what they are saying? They say there is no food and water, and they dislike this miserable food. They say there is no food and water, and they dislike this miserable food. Do you hear what they are saying? It is funny how sometimes we can't hear ourselves, isn't it? How ridiculous and stupid our grumbling can be, just like them. No food, and yet they dislike this food. I think they should have said, God, we hate the food you have provided. God, we despise your gracious provision. And God, we reject your means of grace for our nourishment. And God, we think your means of grace is pointless. That's what they're really saying, isn't it? In the hardship, Israel despised God's gracious provision for them. Now, shouldn't that make us think hard about when and how we have despised God's means of grace for the nourishment in our lives? Back then, God graciously nourished His people Israel wandering in the desert with manna. They despise God's provision. Today, God nourishes His people, His church, with His grace through the church and through the ministry of the Word and the sacraments. In my Christian journey, I find that the times when I have grumbled against God, God, I have no encouragements. God, I have no support. Many times the reality is there were encouragements. There were support. God's living word was there, right beside me. The, it was preached, it was taught, it was spoken, 
It's in audio, it's in paper, it's in articles, it's in the apps, it's in sermons, it's in growth group, it's in ESV, it's in NIV, it's in red letter, it's in black letter, it's in small font and big fonts. It has been true individuals speaking to me, true groups speaking to me. The weekly gathering has always been there with gospel-saturated corporate worship, with Christ-exalting confession, with cross-centered Lord's Supper. God's means of grace mediated through the church was there for me. God's people were there for me. But like the Israelites, I simply, I was simply not satisfied with what God was providing. I wanted alternative nourishment. I loathed God's heavenly provision for me. I wanted God to provide for me my way, what I want. Well, that's me. How about you? What is your experience with God's provision for you? Israel represents us all quite accurately. Let's put ourselves in God's shoe for a while and think about it. Many of us know Auntie Harriet. Auntie Her Say Auntie Harriet noticed that the weather has been hot recently. Okay? And a lot of people in church have been unwell. So she stayed up late one night to cook Pong Sui for all of us. Okay? After service, she personally served me a cup, a bowl of Tong Sui. She knows that I just finished preaching. I got it. Or even before I got it. E. What kind of tong sui is this? Huh? It's disgusting, man. I hate it. What was she thinking doing such a thing? What would you think of me? Or what would you do to me? God has brought us, his people, out of slavery to sin and death through the death of his precious only son. He made us rebels, his family. And now, while we're on the way to the new heaven and new earth, He loves us, He cares for us, He nourishes us with His Word, by His Spirit, through His church. And yet, we despise His gracious provision, we reject His means of grace for our nourishment, and we think His means of, his means of grace pointless. If I can't do that to Auntie Harriet, how can we ever, ever do that to our loving God? Thirdly, let us observe how Israel responded to another setback in their journey, God's judgment on them with the deadly serpents now. Verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they beat the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Notice that Israel acknowledged the sin. And they actually went to God for help, just as they did when King of Arad attacked. That's a good start, isn't it? But now observe their request. What was it that they asked God for? Well, they asked God to take away the deadly serpents. This may seem to be a fair and reasonable request, in light of, but in light of God's response, go along with me for a little while to say that the request 
for God to take away the serpent actually reflects their intuitive desire to play God. That is to dictate what God should do and how He should do it. They could have asked God, please save us, but they did not. Why? Well, I think it is because they think they know better. They despise and reject God's manner earlier because they think of themselves wiser than God, knowing better than God what is good for the nourishment. And here they, we see hints of that again, the innate self-rule that is in them, that I decide what to do and I tell God what is the best way to do it. Verse 7 says, So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and send it on a pole, set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent beats anyone, he should look at the bronze serpent and live. So fourthly, let us observe how God responded to the Israelites' cry. Did God give Israel what they asked for? Yes and no. Yes, he rescued them from death, but no, he did not remove the serpents from them. Instead, he provided another means of saving them. It turned out to be quite an unusual and surprisingly simplistic way. Just look and be saved. Let me ask you, very honestly, at the bottom of your heart, what do you think of God's chosen method to rescue? Would you have guessed that? Just look and they will live and not die. I think it is kind of too easy, don't you think? I was trying to think of a time when I really stuffed up big time in life. It's my fault, I really got into hot soup, perhaps the police is involved, and lives were at stake because of me. And I really wished that I could start all over again, but I knew that I messed up way too much and the situation is beyond repair. Can you think of such a time in your life? Good if you can, but if you can't, it's okay. Just imagine, okay? And now imagine someone came along and say, he can get you out, and all you need to do is look. He can get you out, and all you need to do is look. How would you respond? No harm giving it a try? Or no point giving it a try at all? Because it's so ridiculous and it's too simple. It sounds too good to be true, and you can't believe it. I can't think of a time when I was in such deep waters, which involved the police and people's lives were at stake because of my stupidity and I need a miraculous rescue. Uh, I can't. My life is just not that fascinating. <laughs> but I can remember a time in uni when I really wished that I had not lived the way that I had. And how I wish I could turn back time. Get all the way back into my mother's womb and be born again and be given a second chance. Because it dawned on me what a messed up life that I've been living. And I wish I could start all over. And that was when I realized what a godless life that I've been living with no regard at all for my Creator God all those years, who loved me, 
and cared for, cared for me and made me. I spent, I spent years and years ignoring God, years living with myself as God, and years living unrighteously and in deep darkness. And I deserve nothing from Him but His judgment. I really wish I could start all over with a blank sheet. I wish I could start afresh. And then I heard John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. It sounded to me too good to be true. If it is true, why hadn't anyone told me earlier? But nevertheless, no complaints. I believe it and I just grab hold of it for the rest of my life. Many of us will find John 3.16 very familiar. But did you know the two verses that come before it? Verses 14 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus quoted Numbers 21 to teach people about Himself. And this is what He was saying. He's saying, just as the Israelites had rebelled and were punished by God with deadly serpents, just as they were beaten by the serpents and were healed and were given life simply by looking at God's means of salvation, the bronze serpent, now whoever in this world who had rebelled against God and had followed the ancient serpent, the devil, whoever was beaten by the deadly venom of sin and death and is under God's judgment, they could be healed and receive eternal life simply by looking at Jesus and believing in Him. Him who was lifted up on the cross for the sins of the world, Him who is God's means of salvation, only means of salvation for humanity's salvation. Now, if you are thinking, that sounds too simple, too good to be true, you're right. It is too good to be true. But it is true. And that is why it is called the gospel. Good news. It's good. Just as looking at the bronze serpent was a foolish means of healing dying Israelites, so looking to a crucified saviour a publicly executed man is a foolish means in the world's eyes, but the salvation for sinners condemned to death. For the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who believe is the wisdom and the power of God. Friends, if you put your hand down to feel somewhere, I can't do it, Feel somewhere right above your ankle. I doubt any one of you could feel two holes there that represent snake bites, right? None of us probably. But friends, let me tell you, God tells us that every single person in this room has been beaten by the deadly venom of sin and death. Every single one of us. And that is why we are all dying. 
not just physical death, but eternal death, but the physical death proves that we have been beaten. And that's for our rebellion against God. So if you're someone here, who have, I wouldn't say that if you're someone here who have been beaten, because everyone has been beaten. But if you're someone here who have been beaten and have not looked to Christ and believe in Him and be saved to get the antidote that you may get salvation, you can do that today. Believe in Him. During the time that we'll be spending together later as a church to be making a confession and praying to God, you can just close your eyes and talk to God. Tell Him that you are sorry and tell Him that you, are thank, you, you thank Him for the salvation that you have in Christ. Let me end today by going back to the idea of a journey that we started with. And I'll do that by reading to you two quotes. The first one is from a man called Richard Gaffin. He's an American Bible teacher. And he said this concerning Numbers 21. Israel in the wilderness and believers under the new covenant, that is all of us, are in similar situations. Christians receive the same promise of rest. They are exposed to similar trials and the same dangers of unbelief and apostasy. They are exhorted to the same perseverance in faith in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament times. God's people are pilgrims and travelers. Now as then, they are a people that is on the way. Basically, Gaffin is calling all Christians to remember that we are pilgrims. Remember our desert location that we are in, even though it doesn't look desert. And so remember our desperate state and our need for God's gracious provision every single day. The second and the last quote is from John Bynan. He's an English Baptist preacher. He said this in his book, Pilgrims Progress. Our Christian life is one of gradual progress through a dangerous journey. A surgeon that works out salvation with fear and trembling, relying on the provisions of a gracious God through every single step. Similarly, Jonian reminds Christian that we are pilgrims on a dangerous journey. We are surrounded by our culture and worldliness for which we are too readily prone to wonder and prone to leave God for. But God in His great mercy has provided us graciously, graciously with nourishing us with His Word, strengthening us through, the, through His church by His Spirit. So let us go to Him, always go to Him and rely on Him every single day till we arrive. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, your word tells us that today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in, in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Father, we thank you for your provision and the way that your word speaks clearly and powerfully right into our hearts 
by your Spirit. We thank you for your kindness and your goodness towards us as we await for the return of your Son, as we wait to enter the new heaven and new earth, worshipping you as our living and true God. Father, we pray that your Spirit may work in us every day, that we may not be those who despise your gracious provision, but your Spirit will work in us to grow in love, in gratefulness, in thankfulness for your living word and for your church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.